Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Larissa McLaughlin has over a decade of experience conducting cyberbullying research and is currently a research fellow at the Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre at UniSA. Larissa just completed four years of work at the Thompson Institute USC working on the Longitudinal Adolescent Brain Study Labs, which is collecting data using self-report neurocognitive assessments, neuropsychiatric interviews, MRI scans and EEG. She's also undertaken her own research investigating the neurobiological underpinnings of cyberbullying. Her research used functional magnetic resonance imaging to observe how the brain responds to witnessing cyberbullying. And she's developed something called the Cyberbullying Picture Series for use in this research. Her postgraduate work has focused on cyberbullying, namely the mental health outcomes associated with it, as well as help-seeking and coping behaviours for young people. Her PhD was under a scholarship by the Young and Well Cooperative Research Centre, where she was a key member for the Safe and Well online study at UNISA, led by Associate Professor Barbara Spears. Welcome, Larissa. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Very well. Thank you for joining us from Australia. That's very kind of you. That's all right. Um, it's nice to chat to someone on the other side of the world. The pros of technology, I guess. So we're talking today, you've published a very, very fascinating research paper, which we're featuring as our researcher of the month. And it's called Social Connectedness, Cyberbullying and Wellbeing, Preliminary Findings from the Longitudinal Adolescent Brain Study. And it was published in Cyber Psychology, Behavior and Social Networking. So that is a study that we're dwelling on a little bit today. But first of all, tell us, how did you become interested in this sort of phenomenon of cyberbullying initially? Yeah, so basically it all started back when I was doing my undergraduate degree, which was a psychology degree. I went on to do my honours there and we had to do a research thesis like most honours degrees do. And at that point, my younger sister had actually been experiencing cyberbullying herself and she was only 11 years old at the time. And I remember thinking that this was something very different to the sorts of experiences I had when I was that age. And I really wanted to find out a bit more about it and sort of understand why young people are getting involved in this all the time and then what sort of leads to these negative mental health outcomes that we get later on in life. So it really started back then because of um, yeah my family and wanting to know more about this phenomenon. And Larissa, just for the purposes of people listening, can you help us define those terms, cyberbullying, cyber victimization? Yes. So people often use cyberbullying in general to sort of cover all types of cyberbullying, but I try to differentiate between the bullying and the victimization. But basically the three main criteria that make up cyberbullying per se, one of them is intense. So there has to be intent to cause harm as often you'll hear in the literature and young people as well. They will say things like, oh, you know, I was just joking around or we thought it was funny. We don't think it was actually bullying, but it ends up hurting the person. So that can be a bit confusing with cyberbullying, but with traditional bullying as well, that intent to cause harm is really important. Another criteria is repetition over time. So a one-off incident is normally not classified as bullying. That's normally aggression or an act of violence. So being repeated over time constantly is what constitutes bullying. 
and then an imbalance of power. So there needs to be that differentiation between the bully being more powerful in a sense than the victim. So that's for both traditional bullying and cyberbullying. So the bully is, I guess, someone that is constantly perpetrating those sorts of act, whereas the victim is just has those acts against them. Although the main sort of criteria these days is actually cyber bully victims. So they experience both those forms. They're a victim and then they're normally a bully as well. And that's the most common category that you can get really. Most people are normally both of those roles. So the sort of threshold to prove cyberbullying, it sounds like it's quite high. Yes, it's pretty common. When you look at the prevalence, like it's hard in the literature, you'll find different statistics everywhere. And that's because it is hard to sort of define and different researchers will define it differently, or they'll use different timeframes, like they'll say the past week, whereas some other studies might say the past three months or something like that. So that's why you'll find different studies will say different statistics. So one study might say only 1% of people have experienced cyberbullying and then others might say, no, it's more like 75%. In my experience, it is more around that higher mark by the end of high school, especially most young people have experienced cyberbullying in some way, shape or form, whether they're a bully victim or just a bystander as well, that's still being involved in it. Larissa, can you put your fresh paper that we've referred to, the one that's been published. Can you put that in context? So what did we know? What does your paper look at? So just sort of give us some context so we can understand how your paper contributes to that field. Yeah, so a lot of the research to date has really looked at bullying and those negative mental health outcomes. So you'll read a lot around how cyberbullying can cause depression, anxiety, stress. You'll hear in the media about people that attempt suicide or do complete suicide because of cyberbullying. But an area that's lacking is that role of social connectedness and how that's important, especially in that online context. So what I wanted to know was if social connectedness can play a sort of protective role when it comes to being victimized by cyberbullying and then those negative mental health outcomes. So basically what that paper highlights is that it does that social connectedness can be protective so in other words the more young people feel connected to those around them whether it be family or friends or their school environment as well even their online feelings of connectedness if they have that real strong sense of connectedness then even if they do experience cyberbullying as a bully or a victim they're more likely to still have positive mental health outcomes, even if they're bullied. So that being connected is really important and it can really play a protective role in those that are frequently cyberbullied. So tell us about the sample of children that you looked at and the sort of, you know, the length of time that you explored that sample for this paper. Yeah, so this paper used a group of participants that are in the Longitudinal Adolescent Brain Study, which is being run by the Thompson Institute, which is part of the University of the Sunshine Coast in Queensland. So basically, that's a longitudinal study looking at young people from being aged 12 years up until they're 17 years old. So they're in the study for five years and they visit the Thompson Institute every four months for five years. So there's a, a, a number of measures that are collected, including MRI data and EEG, cognitive data, mental health measures, cognitive measures, self-report. So there's a lot of data there and it's going to be going for a long time. We want to get hundreds of young people in that study. And this paper took a group, a, a small number of them 
that had been in the first year of this study so far. And we looked at their cyberbullying experiences personally, their levels of social connectedness, and then their well-being scores on, on a few different measures as well to see how they were tracking just in that first year of the study. So over time, hopefully there'll be some more papers coming out that we'll be able to look at this again over even a longer period with a bigger group of people. And in terms of the cyberbullying that this group experienced, give us some real life examples of what that looked and read like in terms of what they actually experienced. I think that would be helpful, certainly for parents listening. Yeah, so the measure that we used asks a range of different types of cyberbullying experiences and they had to answer whether they'd experienced them and how often they'd experienced them. So most commonly they include like receiving hurtful text messages or having images or messages shared without their permission, having content shared without their permission, all those. They're basically what you would see on most cyberbullying measures it's around those those hurtful messages hurtful images and content being shared without permission and also being excluded from things as well that they would normally be included in like online groups for example or games and these are incredibly common experiences based on the amount of technology that young people have in their lives Yes, unfortunately, they are. And it it can come in a range of forms these days, because there's mobile phones, iPads, computers, gaming, it's not just, you know, originally, it would have just been the mobile phone. But now there's it can happen on a number of different forms of technology. And then also, when it comes to social media, it can happen on various different social media accounts as well, if they have lots of different accounts. So that really comes down to that repetition criteria, again, is that there might be just that one instance of bullying that happens, but because they may see it on their phone, they may then see it on their iPad, they might see it on one social media platform and then another social media platform and then another one without wanting to say any names of social media sites. That's what can be really damaging is because they're just constantly seeing it over and over again via so many different means. Yeah, I think another researcher referred to it as a paper cut. You know, it's just yeah. it's just, just coming and it's painful. It's sort of there, you know, at the background. And the amount of resilience required to navigate through those experiences can be quite significant, can't it? Yes, resilience is something that I'm interested in looking at at some point as well, because it is really, that's something that's really impacted by cyberbullying, especially if they're experiencing it at that younger age, it can impact them developing that level of resilience. So that's really important. Now, one of the things that we've sort of, we've we've identified over here in Britain in some of this research is that children who already are reasonably vulnerable and have sort of, you know, factors in their life that might be quite difficult or promote vulnerability, that they have a greater chance of experiencing cyberbullying or of of experiencing online harm or, or might have a heightened sort of chance of experiencing some of these things. Has that been echoed in your research at all? Because we only looked at the first year, it's hard to sort of know um, what might be causing people to experiencing higher levels of things, but it's it's certainly something that we're interested in looking at. I mean, especially when it comes to mental health as well, it's sort of that thing where you don't know if the mental health is causing the bullying or if the bullying is causing the mental health issues. So they're, they're quite circular, but it's something that we're interested in, in looking at. And there has been research in the past that has shown that those that are um, more at risk of developing mental health issues are then more likely to experience victimization. So they're then more likely to 
experience suicidality and so on, like they all affect each other. And so that's why that connectedness that I like to focus on is what I say is important because it's it, it's important for well-being, it's important for mental health, for resilience, and then there's so many other factors as well like sleep and exercise and all those usual things that are important for mental health are also important for anyone that's experiencing cyberbullying or traditional bullying as well. They can normally cope better if they have some of those strategies in place. So let's dwell for a moment on the concept of social connectedness. I mean, just let's just unpick it. What does it mean in, in, in real terms? It means that you get on well with your family. You have people around you that you feel like and value you. You have friendships on and offline. You have people you can go to when you're upset. Is that broadly accurate? Yes. Yep. That's a very good explanation of it. But yeah, something that I like to explain about social connectedness is it often doesn't have anything to do with the number of connections that you have. It's, you know, that quality over quantity metric that people like to use. It's that feeling of belonging in that sense of having those connections. It's a feeling, I guess, that you can have that people feel like they belong, that they have someone to turn to. It's it's really like the opposite of loneliness as well, in a way. And I've done talks at schools before to parents uh, and things. And I often try to say that the online connections are really important because it's often a really automatic response for a parent or for a teacher to want to take away the technology or sort of think, oh, we'll just get rid of the phone, get rid of the computer, that'll fix the problem. But in reality, that might actually be more harm than good because young people, that's where their friends are, that's where their connections are, that they really need that online support as well. So taking that technology away is like taking away a lifeline for them. It's an important part of being socially connected. And one of the things I always recommend to parents of children of all ages, particularly at this time of year when children are transitioning in the summer off to different schools or, you know, new settings or moving country or moving house, whatever is happening, children need to be reminded of all of those sources of social support in their lives. I think that's an incredibly sort of psychologically anchoring process. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. So let's talk about what you discovered about social connectedness from this particular group. You knew that social connectedness was related to resilience, to their well-being. What did you learn from this particular work that surprised you, for example? Yeah, so it surprised me, I guess, with the the bully sort of category. So those that had experienced bullying others, that social connectedness was also just as important for them. So that that was a surprising find. I guess I didn't really know what I would would find with them. It's normally the the cyber victimization frequency that's that I find the most things with, the most associations. But in this paper, I also found some associations with the bullying side of things. So that was really interesting in a sense that being connected is just as important for those that are bullying others as well and that their mental health can be impacted just as much as those that are being victimized. So, and again, that that's most likely because they are usually victims as well. And we, that was the same with this study, that the victimization and bullying was highly related to each other. So that's, that's probably why we found that, but it was still a surprise nonetheless that it, mental health could be impacted just as badly for the bullies as the victims and, and social connectedness was just as important for them as well. Yeah, it's quite poignant to think about it, isn't it? That the bully has these sort of psychological needs as well and, it, and can be vulnerable, of course, as well. 
Yes, yeah, because people often think of them as like the bad guys and, you know, why would anyone bully another person? But most likely it is because they're being victimized as well and they're either trying to get some power back themselves or, you know, for some other reason. But it's it's important to not think of them as these horrible individuals. Like they need help as well. I think from a parenting perspective, it's very helpful to say to our own children, if someone is mean to them online, gosh, I wonder what's going on for them. I wonder why they feel so sort of poor about what's going on in their own lives that they feel the need to be unkind to someone else. So you can develop a little bit of empathy in that way for for the person who's causing the harm. Yeah, exactly. Um, And I I try to say that a lot too, that, you know, these these bullies aren't these horrible bully people, that they are victims as well, and that there is normally something going on that's that's causing them to make these nasty sort of comments online, or sometimes they might not even realise what they're doing, especially if they're a bit younger. It's, yeah, it's trying to flip that sort of idea that they're doing it with this intent to be these horrible people, because they're not normally like that. Of course, if a child is being bullied online, it's incredibly distressing for the whole family, as as you pointed to in your own experience as well. But I think that have you identified how we can sort of mediate the effects of that harm through that social connectedness? So what can that 12 year old girl who's being bullied online, how can her family, how can her social support network help her sort of respond to that cyberbullying experience in a way that will reduce the risk to her mental health and well-being sort of in a, in a longitudinal sense. Yeah, so that's a, um, really important to talk about because parents often don't know what to do in these instances or, yeah, want to take away the technology or do something that won't actually help. The most important thing that I say is to just try to have really open and honest conversations with your young people, with your children about cyberbullying, even if you don't think it's happening before it happens so that they can feel comfortable to come and talk to you when it does happen. Often young people, their parents are the last people that they'll tell that it's happening to because they're worried that they'll get punished, that they'll get their phones taken away or that their parent will turn up at the school and walk into the office and embarrass them and they'll feel, yeah, they they won't want to tell them about these things because of all these worries. So it's really important to say, you know, if this does happen, we'll sit down and we can talk about it, we can find a way to respond to this, you know, so that you're comfortable with it. You know, it's important to make sure that they document everything that's happening, like take screenshots of the text messages or, you know, save photos or things or anything like that, like really document it all so that if it does end up involving the school or involving the police, if it gets even worse, they've got that evidence of that. And then the other thing is that bullying is never really going to go away. Cyberbullying is never going to go away. It's not something we're going to solve or get rid of. So it's important instead to just think of how to help young people cope with it and how to deal with it better when it does happen. So talking to your children about positive coping strategies. So instead of turning to substance use or turning to self-harm or anything like that, like doing all those usual self-care things like exercise and eating well, getting a good night's sleep. A really big one is not having technology in the bedroom. So having the whole family put their phones out in the kitchen or something at, at nighttime is a really good one. Definitely making sure it's a whole family approach and not just the teenager because otherwise it's not going to work. If it's just them that has to put their phone outside at night, then they're not going to want to do that. So trying to make everyone do it is a good way to do that. But really focusing on those positive coping strategies is the best solution. And then also making sure that they feel comfortable talking to you as a parent 
about cyberbullying if it does happen. One of the things you're making me consider is I think it's important as a family not to just wait for cyberbullying to happen because it will happen yeah. at some point. You can assume that, but I think it's important to have a plan. So to have a plan of action that you think through ahead of time if it happens. So you're encouraging that help seeking, but you're also helping your children understand that you're taking their opinion and views into consideration. So you're not going to run straight to the head teacher. You know, you are going to talk to them about it. You are going to problem solve together. You're going to come up with a plan. So I think we have to bear in mind that sort of reticence to seek help or to tell us when something is going wrong because they're afraid of our overreaction. So having a, a family plan, a preemptive strike family plan might be a very constructive way forward. Yes, that's definitely the way to go. Making sure that there's a plan in place that, that they feel comfortable talking to you and that they're not going to get embarrassed and you're not going to do something that they don't want you to do. So really having those conversations as soon as you can, even if they're, you know, you don't know if they're on tech, social media or not, like just planning ahead is the best, the best option. Now, Larissa, in terms of the implications for your findings for schools listening, you noted in the study that schools should place an emphasis on the importance of connection, ensure that there are a number of social support systems in place for students who may need it. What would you say is quite effective in that regard? You know, if you were a teacher or a head teacher, what would you be looking to implement? Yeah, so again, just sort of promoting that connectedness. So having some sort of program in place in schools to look out for people that seem like they might be getting disconnected is a good one. I know that there was a school in New Zealand, I can't remember the name of it, but they were doing some sort of some program where people became sort of bully watchkeeper type people and, and they would keep an eye out for anyone that was being bullied. And if they thought they were being bullied, they would look after them and try to help them out. And that's something that's really positive and I think would be good for other schools to do because then those people wouldn't feel isolated and they wouldn't feel alone if they are being bullied. So really having something in place to promote those sorts of connections so that people don't get isolated. I'm not sure if it's like this in over there, but having a good school counsellor is obviously really helpful for students to talk to as well. Maybe having a number of school counsellors if because sometimes students feel a bit anxious about talking to one particular person. So if there's a few options, that might be good. But also just just promoting all those sort of useful helplines. Like down here, we have a, a lifeline and a kids helpline that young people can ring and talk to. It's a stranger, so it's, that's normally a bit more comfortable for them. And there's a lot of online resources now too, where you can chat to counsellors as well. So promoting all those sorts of things is really good so that if they don't feel comfortable talking to their friends or their teachers or their family, then there's these other resources as well, like counsellors, like online support things, like telephone numbers, etc. Like there's this, so that they have lots of different options for support. And your whole paper raising the issue, the connection, you know, between social connectedness and well-being and cyberbullying, you know, it raises the issue of, oh my goodness, how on earth has the pandemic and lockdowns you would imagine that cyberbullying has been amplified during that time period. So how does your research sort of fit into that sort of pandemic research? Yeah, I'm definitely interested at looking into that. I'm sure some people already have because, as you say, a lot of people will have spent a, a huge amount of time online during the pandemic and with school going online as well for a long time. I'm certain that cyberbullying would have hugely increased because of that. 
maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people, you know, got together and were nicer to each other, but <laughs> the world doesn't work that way. So I'm, I'm sure that there was an increase in cyberbullying and we'll probably start to see more and more papers published about that soon. So Larissa, tell us what's the next stage of your work in, in putting this particular paper into context. What's next for you? So what can we chat to you about next year in terms of how this particular piece of research has progressed? Yeah, so I've I've actually moved to a different state in Australia. So um, I'm still collaborating with the Thompson Institute, so still publishing work on this study. So I guess the next thing would be hopefully more data, which as researchers, we're always excited about. The study will have been going for a lot longer and we'll have more participants. So hopefully we'll have some more findings to talk about in regards to cyberbullying in that sense. But in terms of some other work as well, I've got some new studies around looking at the brain to do with cyberbullying. And also in my new work, I'm hoping to be looking at the impact of sleep and how that might impact young people and how they interpret different cyberbullying scenarios as well. So there's lots of things happening. I've got other papers that have recently been published as well on on how the brain's impacted by cyberbullying that I'm always happy to talk about as well. Lovely. Well, maybe we can highlight those studies when we put up the notes to this podcast on the Tooled Up site so everyone can lean into those and have a read of them, if that's okay. Yeah, I'm happy to send through some direct links to to the most recent ones so that people can download them. Or like I can send the PDF even, actually, it's probably better. Lovely. Well, we'll add those to our site and we'll certainly be telling everyone about your work and you know you're our researcher of the month on the front of the tooled up education site for this month so people can read the summary of this particular paper there so thank you so much uh, larissa and we hope to catch up with you again at some point great thank you for having me thank you bye-bye bye this podcast is brought to you by tooled up education the home of evidence-based tips on parenting family life and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.